Hey, good morning. Yeah, my wife tells me I need to smile more, especially true today, because uh, the message today is a little negative, okay? All right? Uh, Let me first say I'm not asking you to choose between me and one of the other elders, at least I hope not. Um, But I need to give you a a cautionary note today. We're not going to step on your toes, at least not intentionally, but we may be stepping on the toes of somebody that you really like, okay? All right, so uh, just to try to hear us out on this. Uh, We're uh, nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And it's important that we take everything in context here. Uh, I think it was a couple months ago, uh, we started with what uh, Jesus is trying to do in the end of the sermon to give us one great overall message. And it's the importance of entering by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those that enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And there are few that find it. So, That's the context, okay? And starting in verse 15, Jesus elaborates on what that means. And here he tells us that we are to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So... Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus loves us enough that he warns us about the obstacles, the the dangers, the temptations, the hindrances of those who attempt to enter through the straight gate and walk the narrow way. And underlying this message is the principle that the gospel is not something to be, to be looked at and admired and revered. It's also to be applied. It's to be obeyed. As James put it in the first chapter of his book, we are not to be like the guy who looks into the mirror and sees what kind of guy he is and then he turns and forgets. But rather, we're to look into the perfect law of liberty, remember it, and then be a doer of the work, not a forgetful hearer. And the man who applies, who carries out the gospel, will be blessed. So, Jesus is going to expose a couple of dangers that we'll encounter as a church and as individual believers, and those dangers require discernment. That's why he warns us. He tells us how to recognize them, how to deal with them, and how to decide between them. And then, finally, he summarizes everything in that great metaphor about two men and two houses. One built on a rock, the other on the sand. And that'll finish us up sometime next year. At the same time, 
throughout all this, he warns us about the fact of judgment and its character, its finality. As he said in the previous verse, the broad way leads to destruction, but the narrow to life. As a teacher, Jesus understands the importance of repetition. So he warns us over and over again that those who remain on the road that is wide face an eternity of destruction. Now, I want to ask you to think about this. When you think about all the people in the world that you know, how many are oblivious to that certain destruction? And Jesus understands how dull and slow we are to accept not only what we cannot see, but what truth stares us in the face. Therefore, he goes to great lengths to make clear the fact of judgment coming for all. And if you're one of those who hasn't really taken that judgment seriously, I urge you to listen to his words today. Today and next month, Lord willing, we're going to take a look at these two dangers. The first danger of which Jesus warns is that of false prophets. Now, who are these guys? Okay, I'm going to test your powers of discernment here. We're going to have a lineup like they do, with, you know, like on the, on, the, on the detective shows. You know, they bring them in and here we go. Sorry for the distortion, but <laughs> Okay. Think about this. Which one is the, bears the profile of a false teacher? Okay? We've got to learn to take the word of Jesus, the teachings, in context. And here, false teachers are teachers who look like they're past the straight gate, but actually they hang out in front of it. And if you listen to them, they will take you not down the narrow way, but down the broad way without even realizing it. They tend to be persuasive, smooth talkers, and they're everywhere. You know, I don't know any of these people. Maybe you do, but I don't. I'm not trying to characterize anybody there as a false prophet. I don't know. Just they're representative, okay? But if you look at the way that Jesus does, the one that best fits the profile of the false, false prophet that we will study today is the guy in the middle. Okay. The first question is we want to address here is how do we recognize them? Now, there are at least two schools of thought about this passage on how to identify false teachers. The first says that the verse refers only to the teaching, that when Jesus says you will know them by their fruits, the fruit is the false teaching. And so the focus is on heresy. Okay? We're familiar with that. But there's another school that says that no, it has nothing to do with the teaching. Rather, it is the kind of life that that teacher lives. So the fruit of this group is clearly the application of what they believe. So they argue that Jesus is trying to expose hypocrisy here, not heresy. Okay? But 2 Peter 2 is instructive. Because there it says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing, them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, pretty clearly, Peter's talking about heresy here. However, the operative word, the important word, is secretly. Okay? In other words, subtlety. In other words, they fool people. This is the primary characteristic and danger of the false prophet. The problem with the first school of thought is that, you know, wrong doctrine is not all that difficult to discern, you know? If somebody tells you that you've got to work, do good works to get into heaven, or uh, you've got to give to his ministry if you want health and wealth, you know, that's pretty easy to spot, okay? However, the same is true of the second school, the lifestyle flowing from that person. The preacher who condemns sexual immorality, immorality from the pulpit yet maintains a mistress, or the one that drives around in a great big shiny car with the personalized license plate that says tithe on it, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? All right? Uh, it, but it, so it seems more complex than either of these, just on their own. The false prophet must be exceptionally deceptive. He must be and have all that is pleasing, friendly, a great smile, the quintessential Christian persona and charm. Almost too good to be genuine. He uses all the right Christian words. He'll talk about Jesus, maybe even the cross. He'll extol the love of God. He sounds and looks so good. More like the guy that was in the middle. He's got a great appearance. He's, all, he's what we would all call a nice guy. Subtle. But he preaches a very comfortable message. All speak well of him, even while he praises Jesus. But it's more than that. The false teacher may be wrong in both his teaching and his lifestyle, because both of those always go together. The falseness of his teaching is not in what he says, but is detected by what he does not say. So, what does the false teacher not teach. And there's a list on your handout here if you want to follow along. In general, he's not going to teach that the gospel or the Christian life is difficult or challenging because that would be too uncomfortable. And this approach is pretty effective. Many Christians today seem incapable of discriminating between a teacher who is only positive and encouraging as, one, as opposed to one who speaks the whole truth, even when it hurts. Do you remember if you spent much time in the Proverbs? Proverbs 27 tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend. Okay? The truth that hurts when it comes from a friend. But deceitful are the kisses, the comforting words from an enemy. Now, error is not only that which is clearly and outrageously wrong. The most Dangerous teachers are those who simply do not emphasize the right things. In other words, the whole truth. He gives no offense to the natural man, so it pleases all. His teaching is pleasant, easygoing, comfortable, and comforting. Few can find any fault in it because it is not offensive as far as it goes. And he truly appears as gentle as a sheep. More specifically, the false teacher can be recognized in practice because he will teach vaguely, never a specific doctrine. He does teach one doctrine, one attribute of God, that is, God is 
love. And we all agree with that. But he doesn't teach that which is obvious. He, he does not teach that which is obviously false, but never the whole truth. And to conceal the whole truth is as bad as teaching heresy. He is like a, he's sneaky because he quietly lulls his audience into comfort with his gentle demeanor and his message. But he is ravenous because he never confronts men with truth, holiness, righteous, righteousness, justice, and the wrath of God. And in fact, encourages them to stay on Broadway that leads to destruction. He will never teach about the final judgment, the eternal destiny of the lost. He avoids passages like, or books like 2 Peter and Jude and 1 John. He might teach the golden rule, but he will never teach the whole Sermon on the Mount where Jesus alerts us to the dangers of false prophets as ravenous wolves and rotten trees. Likewise, he will never preach like Paul preached to Felix and Drusilla about holiness, righteousness, justice, and the wrath of God. Another thing that the false preacher avoids is the exceeding sinfulness of man and his inability to earn salvation. The false prophet won't say we are perfect, but he won't teach us that man has a fallen nature, that sin is serious, that man is lost and depraved because sin separates us from a perfectly holy and righteous God. He will not say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, nor will he say that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. But the problem is, the folks out in the audience assume that he believes those things while he's preaching, but he doesn't. He avoids the atonement or the payment of sin by Christ on the cross. He'll talk about Jesus and death on the cross, but not about the need for that sacrifice. Now, there's a vital question or a test that you can use. Does the teacher believe and teach not only that Jesus died on the cross because of God's perfect love, but that Jesus had to die because it was the only way to bear the guilt and pay for our sins, because it's the only way to satisfy God's perfect justice. Does he believe that Christ was crucified as a substitute for us, as punishment for our sins? Does he believe that if God had not punished our sin in the body of Christ on the cross, that even God himself could not have forgiven us. Does he teach from Romans 3 that this was all necessary in order to, quote, show God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ? So, if you listen to a preacher, like, for instance, like on Easter Sunday, and you do not hear this mention, what I've just said, you may be listening to a false prophet. Okay? If instead he talks about the people around the cross with emotion and sentimentality only, but avoids talking about the Father who made his Son to be sin for us, how he laid down our iniquities on Christ, then that same Christ is warning you here that you may be listening to a false prophet prophet. The false prophet won't preach repentance. Okay? 
Okay, what do we mean by repentance? Well, it's, first of all, the recognition that I am a vile, guilty sinner in the sight of God. That the justice of God says I deserve an eternal punishment in hell. It means that I know the wickedness of sin that is in me. It is part of my nature. But that I now have a genuine desire to get rid of it and to turn my back on it. It means I'll pay whatever it costs to renounce the mind, outlook, and practice of the world of which I was a part. To do that, I must die to myself and follow Jesus. It may cost me my friends. It may cost me my loved ones. It may even cost me financially in my business. But I don't care because I know that in the end, it will be worth it all to be with Jesus. However, the false prophet is going to skip that part about depravity and the desperate need of Christ. Instead, he says, don't beat yourself up. You don't need to be sorry for your sins. Just decide for Christ. Just become a Christian. Just rush in with the crowd through the gate. What gate is that? The last thing the false prophet wants to do is sound like those old fogies John Wesley, George Whitfield, and certainly not Jonathan Edwards, who taught that the wrath of a holy God should send us all scrambling for Christ. That's far, far too uncomfortable, far too convicting for the gentle Jesus, who has little concern with such trivialities as justice and truth. The false prophet certainly will not mention the necessity of walking through the straight gate and down the narrow path. However, Jesus tells us that if we only listen to that message that he preaches without practicing it, we're not entering the straight gate. Much like the Pharisees, the false prophet will pick out three or four sins to avoid. He won't mention the more subtle ones like pride and idolatry of things or people. He doesn't certainly talk about 1 John 2 where it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And for the false prophet, the concept of holiness needs to be very basic. Just don't do a few things in particular. Like, don't murder anybody, don't steal, don't lie, and, and don't treat others badly. Paul tells us more generally in uh, 2 Corinthians 13 to examine ourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Self-examination is not something a false prophet will talk about. They don't want to encourage you to examine yourselves. Instead, they just say, look to Jesus. They encourage the opposite of what Paul says we must do, as well as what the Puritans and Wesley Whitfield and Edwards told us. False prophet will not encourage you, as Paul does, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, you know, they ask, why examine yourself in order to put sin to death when you can instead just contemplate Jesus? 
Of course, we should always focus on Jesus. But to ignore our sin is a deceptive and a comfortable trap. It's a half gospel, therefore it's a false gospel. It denies that we need to put on the whole armor of God. There's no need for armor because there's no problem of sin. It ignores the problem of our sin and evil because it is all too uncomfortable for us. Now, we just finished a study of the Reformation, and we heard often about how the Roman church had a system of works which recognized the passion of Christ on the cross, but based salvation not only on Jesus, but on works and penance. Now, I'm not saying the same thing here. I'm not saying we must add something to the cross or to Jesus. Rather, the false prophet is going in the opposite direction, and he just says, just look to Jesus, because he is love, and he's comfortable. Basically saying, he is your friend. He implies to you, you're okay, he will accept you as his friend, just because he's a nice guy. This acceptance is not only just as I am, but it's without any recognition that I desperately need Jesus due to my spiritual poverty. It's essentially saying, come in. Come on in and without any need of any change. That will allow you to believe that I am good enough on my own to be a pal of Jesus. Now, I realize, as I said in the beginning, some of you may be offended that I'm offending your, your favorite TV pastor or your favorite author or whatever. Um, because you hear me saying that their messages may be positive and encouraging, but they may be, in fact, a wolf in sheep's clothing. But I can honestly say this, I'm not saying this at all. Jesus is saying this. If you've got a problem with this, you've got a problem with that guy. All right? He said, beware of false prophets who appear to you outwardly as in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He's essentially saying, if the wool fits, wear it. When Jesus mentions sheep's clothing, he's saying they come in looking and sounding just like the rest of us sheep. Harmless, friendly. If you know anything about sheep, that's, that label is not necessarily a compliment. Okay? Sheep are neither terribly bright nor discerning. And he warns us that we sheep need to up our game. We need to discern and discriminate. Yes. Even with, or especially with, positive and encouraging teachers if they do not preach the uncomfortable side of the truth that we're sinners who not only need a friend, but need a Savior. So this is not an issue of personality. False prophets often have a very pleasant personality, be very attractive, and there's nothing wrong with being pleasant or attractive. Wish I could be that way. <laughs> they, they may even be genuinely so, and they may not even understand what they're doing. They may be what one pastor called an unconscious hypocrite. But it's precisely because of their attractive personalities that they're so dangerous, regardless of their motive. If a teacher does not convince the audience of their need for Christ's suffering on the cross, Christ himself says we need to watch out. Church leaders are responsible, responsible for protecting against these very wolves uh, who may come in. Now, these days you can encounter these uh, false prophets in many places through many media. 
People have access to all kinds of teachings from so, diff- so many different places. Uh, we have the tendency to cling on to teaching that feels good. But if we're truly sinners, as God's Word says we are, then God's Word should convict us about something. If you listen to an uplifting teacher and find that you're never challenged, never convicted of any blind spot in your life, this may be a sign that you're listening to a false prophet. His teaching is very subtle. There will be a nod to morality. He'll talk about God, Jesus, and his death on the cross. It is emotionally uplifting. However, there is little, if any, mention of doctrine, of things that really matter, of the truth that requires a change in us. His gospel is easy. Uh, Last week, Willie Brooks taught us in Sunday school about how in the 1800s, theological liberalism came in, started to dilute the gospel. Uh, And then they still preached morality. They taught about God and Jesus, even the cross. Their teaching did not sound like heresy because it was so pleasant. But what they did not teach were the important doctrines, the hard truths that convict and our desperate need for a Savior that drives us to the cross. Now, that is the main reason I believe that those churches who adopted that liberal theology are largely dying out today. Because the demise of those churches has to, has to be due to more than just music and worship style. Uh, yet the false prophets have, ad- have adapted because they know their message is attractive if just packaged differently. So now they have all the right music and the styles that appeal. Presumably, you are here today because you believe that what is taught here is is a biblical message brought to you through multiple fallible teachers who are accountable to one another and who are willing to listen if, if some believer out there believes that our teaching is off. However, there are various ways the false teaching condemned by Jesus can come to you. Uh, it might be radio or TV or the internet or even books can be used by false teachers. The, the teachers at Lion and Lamb have sometimes said to one another that our teaching needs to lead to a so what. Okay? Um, what difference does our teaching make to the listener? What does it call them to do or change in their life? At least that's what we try to do. Uh, And the first would be for all, believers and unbelievers alike. And that would be to listen carefully to the message of all teachers to whom you're exposed, including me. There are many good teachers out there, but some of them are just attractive and pleasant and comforting, period. So, we encourage everybody to apply the test mentioned today. If the only thing that happens is you feel good without being challenged or convicted, you may very well be listening to or reading the words of a false teacher, someone who Jesus says is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, to believers, I want to say this. We can unwittingly somehow adapt or adopt the message of the false preacher in our own evangelism. Very subtle. That we have so much desire to bring others to the kingdom, to give them the light of Jesus, that we can end up doing the same. 
You know, a lot of attention is placed in evangelism on relationship and trust, as well it should. Nothing wrong with that at all. However, if we're not careful, we can allow our desire to see a friend saved cause us to compromise the gospel so that it becomes something less than the whole truth. Today, there is a phrase used by some Christians, easy believism, and it's usually used in a derogatory way. Now, to be clear, uh, I should say first that there's two ways the term easy believism is used. One is, quite frankly, what we believe here, okay? That works will not save a person. That instead we're saved by Christ's finished work on the cross as payment for our sins, by grace through faith. And there are those who believe that works are necessary, and they will sometimes call our view easy believism or something to that effect, because it does not require good, hard work to be saved. All right? And we just spent the last seven weeks talking about that view, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now to try to defend that. We all understand that while good works do not, in fact, cannot save us, good works are the fruit or the evidence of our salvation. Good works do not cause, rather they result from salvation. I think we're pretty, pretty solid on that. The easy believism that we're going to talk about today is the notion that nothing is more necessary for salvation than an intellectual acknowledgement of God's work on the cross accomplished by a verbal appeal to be saved. This formula for salvation can be reduced to merely saying a sinner's prayer, period, over, done, you're there. Now, this may be due to a rush situation, maybe elevator evangelism. Uh, I don't know. However, it's often because the Christian genuinely desires to see another saved by making a verbal decision with as few distractions as possible, without any obstacles, including a basic awareness of the necessity of Christ's sacrifice for our sin. Some find themselves saying, all you have to do is just ask Jesus to come into your heart. That's it. Now, this is not untrue, but it is just part of the gospel. However, it can result in a situation where the convert can come away with the impression that once he said the prayer to Jesus to come into his heart, it's good. I'm good to go out and live life as usual without any change, without any good works, since I know I'm now saved no matter what. They, guy told me so. Intellectually, the eager witness just told the convert that her prayer has become a sort of get-out-of-hell-free card. Now, I ask you, is that really true love, to allow somebody to believe that? Now, the other possibility is that the decision is based on good feelings. Maybe you're singing a lot of songs and they just got caught up in the moment. And one, gets, one may feel that way from just making Jesus my friend without understanding why he had to go to the cross for my sin. When the going gets tough or other believers challenge this new Christian, supposedly, to walk the walk, to live it out, that person may just become a little uncomfortable enough to say, you know, I didn't sign up for that. I just prayed the prayer. You didn't tell me there's anything other than asking Jesus to come into my heart. Now, I know in some of your minds, this is bringing up the issue of the security of the believer. That's a doctrine that we believe here. 
We hold if you're truly saved, you don't lose that salvation. But while the security of the believer is a biblical fact based on the finished work of Christ on the cross, it is certainly true that some of those who seem to have made a decision or accepted Christ may not genuinely be saved. True salvation is not so much our accepting Christ as it is his accepting us. We're saved by the power of God for the purpose of God, and that purpose includes the works that give evidence of our conversion. Those who continue walking according to the flesh are not believers, Romans tells us, Romans 8 tells us, because they cannot please God. First of all, salvation is not merely an intellectual assent and verbal declaration of Christ as Savior. James makes that clear, that belief in that, that there is a God, and even the deity of Christ by itself is insufficient. Okay? You believe that God is one. You do well. However, we talked about this in Sunday school, the devils also believe and tremble. You know, in, in apologetics, we sometimes talk about you've got an atheist, they don't believe God exists. And that's maybe someplace where you've got to start, but you can't finish there. That's not the gospel. That's just a part of it, as is the deity of Christ. The word for this type of faith in God is ascentia. It's the mental assent, mental acknowledgement of the fact or existence of God. Instead, what we're looking for is fiducia, a faithful trust in the fact of God. Ascentia has no heart, no commitment to God, and ultimately is without God. Therefore, it is an empty belief. It has no power. It doesn't change anybody. Paul makes this makes it clear that there is a change. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul puts it in terms of fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all the things that should result from your salvation. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we are truly saved, we want to follow Jesus. And he says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch snatch them out of my hand. Now that is true security. That's why 1 John 2.4 tells us that the one who says, I have come to know him, who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Of course, we remember our discussions about the hard truth of James 2, that faith by itself, if it does not result in works, is dead. Obviously, Christians are called to obey Christ, not live in sin. Romans 6 tells us, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, may it never be. How shall we, who have died to sin, still live in it? So in this sense of easy believism, we would agree that it is false. It is deceptive in the the most dangerous of issues 
There is nothing more important than our eternity. Why? Because it negates the need for repentance and holiness. Now, this version of easy believism may certainly come from listening to a false prophet, a teacher who gives us a comfortable but partial gospel. That's the point of Jesus' message. Beware of false prophets, sheep's clothing. They're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Therefore, another so what for believers is that we should always present the whole gospel when we witness. We should always include the need first to acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior because of God's perfect justice. He can't have you and your filthy rags sitting next to Him. Before you explain that because of God's perfect love and His sacrifice of His Son on the cross, you can have all that. That's what we've got to do. Then, if a sinner's prayer is given, we should actually disciple that person. Discipleship starts with evangelism. At minimum, we need to explain that if the prayer was genuine, that person is born again. He's a new creation in Christ. And it will show in a changed life. The last thing we should do is leave them with the false security, the lie of a free pass to heaven without changed lives. Remember, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but the faithful are the wounds of a loving friend. Now, there may be some here who have heard this message and with a church this size. It may make you wonder about your own salvation. Again, Paul has exhorted us to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You know, this is just being honest with yourself. Don't fool yourself. If this is you, your so what is to truly trust and accept the free gift for you that was purchased at great price by Christ on the cross. Confess your sins, repent, change, and live with the Word and the Holy Spirit as your guide. When should you do that? A good time to do that would be today. In a few minutes, before taking the Lord's table, there will be a period of quiet when we will all be encouraged to examine ourselves, to confess any sin that separates us from God. Yes, Christians do sin. So that would be a good time to say, Father, I know I'm a sinner. Unworthy of being with you. But I want to be adopted as your child. I commit my heart and my life to you. Yes, Jesus, come into my heart. Save me and change me. If any of you have any questions at all about this, leaders would be delighted to talk to you about this. Father in heaven, you are a just, but thankfully you are a loving Father. And we understand those two concepts. They stand in equilibrium. And it's only because of your love 
and the sacrifice of your son that we can spend eternity with you. It has nothing to do with our goodness. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us all to understand that, to be alert to teachers when they only speak about the positive and the encouraging and never mention the hard truths that convict our hearts. Help us to remember that when we talk to others about Jesus. Yes, he, God is love, but he's also just and true. And he requires that because we are unworthy to be in his presence. Lord, help us to make others clear about that and that it does result in a changed life. Father, thank you for the teachings of Jesus because it is so, so clear once we take a close look at it, what he wants from us. Thank you, Father. We give you all praise and all glory. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.